as much as I have been given real gifts, right? I can move fast and I'm quick and I'm, I'm sharp and I can make these jokes. One of the things that I realized as part of my experience is causing people pain around me, right? Whether it's because they see me and they say, well, why aren't I moving that fast, right? Or why is he moving that fast? It's overwhelming me. It's upsetting me. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 22. Today's kind of an exciting conversation on many levels. If you've been following my work and my podcast, you'll have gleaned some of the important ideas around how difficult it is to get through some of the more defensive ways that human beings deal with the world. We are so exquisitely intelligent and wired for survival that our environments growing up and generationally contribute to create these very sophisticated emotional matrices that govern us. And to some extent, as you'll hear me and my guest, Joe Satin Levin, talk about today, the processes of these shifting grounds underneath our feet as we mature and try to make sense of ourselves and the world and answer certain existential questions, a lot of that is is often out of our hands. And we are in many ways here for the ride. And we kind of just need to pay attention and let certain events in our life affect us and to take them seriously. On the other hand, as Joe opens up about today when he helps us understand neurodivergency, what that means, how it affects people, and really a, a contemporary way of appreciating the different ways that people are wired, it can really affect our ability to have relationships with ourselves and with others. And the reason that Joe ended up on the podcast with me today is that he wrote a very moving piece uh, an essay, which I introduced in the podcast, that I read, and it touched me. Not only is he a great writer and super intelligent, but he took a risk in the piece to name uh, some very personal parts of his own journey towards dealing with medication and entering into the world of uh, looking into the effects of psychedelics on human beings and in the healing process. I have had the privy of looking at some of the more current research, particularly with MDMA in the United States and PTSD with soldiers. And it's fascinating from the point of view of how it contributes to us being able to get through these intransigent ways that the human being protects themselves. And this has been our quest as human beings for thousands of years. It is not new, this question, at all. The idea of, of coming to our own self-awareness and consciousness uh, has brought with it a tremendous weight and burden as we reflect our own existence to ourselves and to others and in all the ways that that goes right, but all the ways that that can go so terribly wrong. We are often just hanging by a thread in terms of our own sanity and 
And I think this is really at the heart of our conversation today, which is how we maintain our identity, how our identities become sometimes supremely rigid, inflexible, and also at moments in life when we all of a sudden become aware of parts of ourselves that were previously hidden to us that are crucial. Joe tells a beautiful story in the podcast today about a moment with his son where he becomes aware of himself and his relationship to his son and this pivot, this emotional pivot that he made to hold his son in mind. And that's another theme that, of course, you will recognize from my work and from the conversations I've had with you and with others here. So without further ado, I would like to bring in Joe Satin-Levin and just to remind you that I'm very actively engaging with many of you on Instagram. You can find me at I am Mitchell Smolkin. I post there every day pieces that relate to this podcast, pieces that relate to psychology and mental health and the philosophy of psychology and also the history of this, this huge field. And if you're new to the podcast, please rate it. Please share it with your friends. It is a labor of love, and you can find a lot more out about me and my work at mitchellsmolkin.com. So I will stop harassing you with all that information and let my interview with Joe speak for itself. I really hope you enjoy. So I'm always kind of tickled, and, and it, it's a continual process of restoring my faith in the world when these moments of I don't want to say synchronicity, but just sort of when things align and and I'm touched in a way that inspires me to reach out to people that not only I love, but also when there's a convergence of, of our lives. And so it's one of these cases where I'm here with Joe Satin-Levin, my old neighbor, but also uh, now a future colleague who is jumping into the psychotherapy fray and in particular passionately writing about and trying to disseminate information on some of the most exciting frontiers in psychotherapy. And I can't wait to jump into this conversation with you. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. I'll just add quickly, you said, I don't want to say synchronicities. And I'm running into this a lot in my activism. And I have quite a few psychedelic colleagues who would love to use that word on myself remain a skeptical man. But I, I also I also felt that kind of inclination when yes. I heard from you. My, my caveat was out of respect for you, actually. I wanted to, I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, to literalize it too much. Hey man, we can do whatever you want to do. It's your podcast. I was in Sweden and, and Sylvia, my wife sent me a link to this article that then I saw that you'd written very recently called There's No Shame in a Shortcut. And to be honest with you, it was very touching to read it. Like I, I even, as I say it right now, in my body, feel that it uh, it touched me because we did spend a lot of time talking, hanging out. We, we live very close to each other. I have a lot of respect for you. I always did. Some of my friends last night that came over, my friend Sean, who's a brilliant philosopher, you know, misses you. And so, you know, but in this article which I hope people go and read and I'll put a link to it because when I was trying to pull quotes from it for today's discussion, I wanted just to quote the whole article. It was like, oh, that, oh, and that, oh, and that. It was just like, like every paragraph was precise and deliberate and rich, but you opened up and to be frank, it was like, oh, like there's a side of Joe that I knew intuitively, not that I know anything you don't, or I have any right to your emotions at all. I didn't even know it in the moment. And I think it's, I'm, I'm presuming probably neither did you to an extent from what you wrote, but it was like, oh, wow. Like here's this whole other world that I felt very touched to kind of be able to explore. And I give you a lot of credit for the courage that you had to write about it. So thank you. And, and I'm really glad to be here with you. Yeah, I appreciate those very kind words, Mitch. And I, I really appreciate being here with you. One of the things I just want to say right off the bat is I've been kind of stunned at some of the reactions that I've gotten from people like close to my life, in my life, like my uncle, you're another example of people who've reached out to me, thanking me for my vulnerability and kind of being quite solicitous about some of the pain that I expressed. And what's interesting is I don't actually, I don't feel like I wrote it from such a pain-informed place. I mean, you're the therapist, I'm the aspiring therapist. 
we don't see our pain nearly as clearly as other people do sometimes. But I'm on your podcast and your podcast is it's on the dignity of suffering. I worry I overplayed <laughs> how much I've suffered because I do want to make it very clear. I've got a ton of privilege. I've led a wonderful life, great parents, wonderful wife, you know, grew up with, uh, uh, did not want uh, lived a comfortable life. So I don't know. I wanted to, I don't know if that's the right time. <laughs> this is the right time to put that out there. But um, yeah, I saw that when you wrote to me and fair enough, I think there is a, uh, I think that membrane that you're describing is, is what makes the piece so special. It's what makes some of these discussions difficult. I tend to think that just to borrow the kind of Christian metaphor, if you will, that, that there is a kind of idiosyncratic cross that everyone bears regardless of circumstance. And that's very tricky when we have such intimate knowledge of, as you're pointing out, all kinds of different ways that life throws us curveballs and nothing, you know, nothing's more prescient than what's in our face right now around all kinds of displacement that's going on. And, but I think that, you know, coming from also the Jungian world where, where archetypes and I think that that was actually Carl Jung's greatest contribution was, okay, great. Like you, there is a certain privilege here. You're still going to come to your knees at some point, regardless of, of whatever, like there's still this kind of moment and many moments of dying in life. And, and I really do believe, and I'm not just, you know, I could have made some sarcastic comments there, but I bit my tongue because I, I really do. I think people that listen to the podcast appreciate, you know, a kind of healthy earnestness around these discussions. And, and I think there is really something to be mined in the piece that you wrote, having known you for a long time, having known your family about what you're navigating and what this means to you. And I know that I don't have to ask you that. I, I know this is the real deal in terms of genuinely going into this and, and feeling like things are opening up in a way that are very meaningful for you and are making a difference. And I'd love to ask kind of, where did this come from? Like, I'd love to, like, having not spoken to you in a while, how did this article come to be? Like, what inspired you to write it? That's a good question. Also, my way of sort of throat clearing, recognize that I don't want to argue with you about Jung for the next 45 minutes. So we'll put a pin in that and continue arguing about Jung later. And also the irony of us using Christian imagery in a helpful way about an article that had the last story was about Bertrand Russell. So we'll yes. We'll put that there. We'll put that there. Hey, man, Christianity's got love. You and I are Jews. We we, we got the rules. <laughs> All right, so I'll put that aside. The the article when I volunteered for the Canadian Psychedelic Association, when I was in my interview, they they said, okay, well, you know, what are some of your kind of professional skills? And I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. I can talk to you about Heidegger for nine hours or Abraham Lincoln. I didn't like like Microsoft Excel or that comes up in the, in the piece as well. I didn't have that many skills that I thought were sort of professional. And one thing that I did say though, is uh, you know, I see you guys, you're interested in blog writers. Yeah, I can write. I've, I've been marking papers in university and high school for 15 years, mostly high school. And so I just, I, I came into the community. There wasn't assigned a role where some of our volunteers are. Um, and I just sort of started hanging out in the community, getting to know people and starting to think about different things that I might write about. And kind of organically through my activism, through talking to my friends, I started running into this, this shortcut idea that, well, you know, sure, there's interesting research going on with psychedelics, but, you know, come on, it's, a, it's, it's really a shortcut. And I had this image of people thinking that like psychedelic therapy is kind of like, well, you're popping a Tylenol and then you're better. And that feeling like kind of a cheat. So A, that's, that's for anybody who's undergone any experience with any positive experience that's had salutary mental health effects with psychedelic modalities. It's not like that. But I was really interested in this idea of a shortcut because it did connect in with this with this feeling that I've always had of like, well, I sort of love shortcuts and I kind of, I, 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 I've often, I go with the flow or look for the kind of easiest path. And that in conjunction with, you know, changes in my life in the last few years, 
that got me to therapy, that got me to meditation, that got me to understanding the role, the relationship between mind and body a little bit better, which is to say exercising more. <laughs> All that kind of converged as I was thinking about, well, you know, they, I, I want to be useful in this, in activism, and in this cause. So I, I, I should write about something. I first took a go at it talking about my son and he's wonderful and has his own experiences and his own inner world. He is not um, neurodivergent. And I sort of told a joke about my son at the start that connected to the stigma around drugs, but it was sort of a backhanded way. And I was trying to be funny. And I, I was surprised that the editors that I was really fortunate to work with friends of mine were not digging it. They didn't think it was that funny. And they were trying, they were, they, they found it kind of a labor to figure out what the hell I was trying to say. Mm. And on my second draft, I just got rid of my, got rid of my son. Uh, and I started talking about my daughter. Probably the reason I didn't start talking about my daughter is it's, 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 it's painful. Yes. So I don't know. I could, I, again, as I, as I would tell my students, I can give you a 30 second answer, a two minute answer, a five minute answer. I can well, scream at you for the next nine hours, but that's sort of in a nutshell. It, it strikes me that it'll be important to explain, to at least give people an idea of what neurodiversity is for you. And, and since it sounds like you've been really in the weeds around that, and to be honest, you know, I've studied in this field for many years and it really seems to me, and maybe you have a better read on, on the, the sort of evolution of this thinking, I'm sure it's been around for longer than we realize, but for me, it's like the last decade, this has really started to emerge and reach public discourse around the way people view everything from autism to, as you write about ADHD and a whole range of other ways that people organize themselves that were, you know, that are not very familiar to the general public. But, you know, just could, could you, could you say a bit more about what neurodiversity is, how it is seen and, and, and yeah, what it means to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, and again, I'm not, I, I'm not an expert. The only thing that I, I think I'm an expert on is my own subjective experience of neurodivergence. It, it has been around. The, the, the term has been around not as long, obviously, as uh, neurodivergence has been around, which is as long as human beings have been around. And Temple Grandin's TED Talk can tell you a lot more about this than I can. And her suspicions of who in the past might have been neurodivergent before the diagnosis. But to me, it's kind of a spectrum where certain differences from a general, from the kind of mean of what we expect brains to do and the way people to behave, whether it's, um, it's often in the areas of sociability and their relationships and personal interactions. At a certain point, we start getting into unique cases. And on that spectrum lies, yeah, I don't, I don't really know the, the nouns that different people in different communities um, like to use. Cause I I've had students who have taken umbrage and saying this person has autism versus this person is autistic. I've had, and it's like both sides. Yes. So I can only really speak for myself, ADHD. It just always seemed like a lark in the way people talked about it, the way people would joke to me, be like, Oh yeah, I'm sure you have it. And it never seemed like it was actually something it just always seemed kind of trivial to me. And I, I think I sort of hinted at that in the piece was like, well, come on, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your shit together. And learning more about it made me realize I actually only really learned more about it through the process of diagnosis and the literature that I got as a result of the diagnosis. And then the reading that I've done since that it's, it's no joke. It's not trivial at all. And it can have, it can be, it, it is, it is a extraordinary challenge. And I'm fortunate that I think the way um, ADHD presents in me is, as I said in the piece, that there's real benefits and trade-offs. And that is also the case with, with autism and Tourette's and lots of the other things that are, that are in that kind of family. So, you know, Temple Grandin, for example, I, I, have you seen that film, the no. HBO movie? Oh, no. I can't recommend it enough. But I, I used to show it to my students about philosophy of mind and about a relationship with animals. She can do things 
lots of people can't. Mm. Um, and I, but I think people who see the film and Temple Grandin herself has said that that's, it's, it's a very good representation. She was happy with the representation. There are real trade-offs to being able to do what she can do. Uh, and I'm not sure if given the option, people mm. would take it. And mm. I realize I'm straying from your um, question. To an extent. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You I, know, I, I, well, because there's an interesting, it's quite nuanced, is it? Because you mentioned sociability, right? Which yeah. is often the core way that these sort of arrhythmatic experiences that people have internally or externally, that's one of the ways that you first sort of discover, right? That that something, as you pointed out, you know, in the way that even education is organized and and other, you know, just our societies organized, it really is a kind of often it becomes people become marginalized because they can't fit in this kind of rhythm. And I love that research when I was training, where they would even just look at like reciprocity and play and response times, and you sort of notice that people will fall outside of this kind of mean of like in conversations, but. I don't want to make this superficial. There's a there's hopefully a an interesting question in here somewhere around, you know, what I what I think was really neat about what you wrote about. I mean, you wrote, quote, what I've learned very clearly is just how much shame I've been sitting on and how much I've been giving to my daughter. And what I'm so fascinated about is how we can be very so you're a social person, right? I mean, in fact, that like the whole the whole reason we got to know each other is actually just be, just how social you are and Last night when I had people over, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think we share something. I like bringing people together, too. But there is this whole other, which is amazing. And that's, I think, that was Freud's greatest, right? That was the whole revolution, right? There's this whole uncon- there's this whole thing going on that is not seen and it's implicit. And it's very internal. It's very private and personal. And I think that's a bit of what you're alluding to. But maybe you could help me understand the difference between like, oh, I'm social as in come to my backyard and hang out with me you know, versus a, I think what you're opening up about, there's something else going on that doesn't get articulated or communicated in an explicit way. And that's a bit of, I think, what you were writing about that it's like, here's. Yeah, there is an interesting question there. And I appreciate you bringing Freud back in because if we're going to say, oh, you're Jungian or you're Freudian, I'm more comfortable in the yep. Freudian world. I don't know. He had a Jewish mom. I have a Jewish mom. I just, I feel, I feel he that's understood it, me right? Just, that's yeah, it, right? That's the affiliation. That, that, that's it. <laughs> There is this private experience that, and I, I keep bringing up Temple Grandin, not because I'm trying to say that people who struggle with autism, that that I uh, have the same struggles. I don't. But again, there's this one line in the film where her teacher says, you have a, you have a very unusual mind. You think in pictures. And she says, well, don't you? And the answer is no. Mm. And so I, that process of realizing that mine is not an ordinary mind, which I don't want to say in a self-aggrandizing way, because there's plenty of things that I'm trying to work on. But my pace, for example, is very, very fast, right? And some people like it. Some people like hanging out. I'm funny. and I can, I can, I can reel off anecdotes and I can quote you the Lorax word for word. The rest of the podcast would be just be me doing Dr. Seuss. Should we do it, Mitch? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, you got to stand out. You got to stand out in this business. Let's man. just you let's just throw it all out and and uh... maybe I'll work in a quote here and there. And I would just it was just sort of you, you know how cognitive dissonance works. Somebody would say something like, "I dude, how the hell do you memorize all these things?" I I, I don't do that, and I just kind of well, you know. Okay. So you don't remember the person I'm talking to doesn't memorize things like that, or the person I'm talking to doesn't go at that pace. And I didn't realize that that was kind of a sign that I was different. And, you know, there's, there's kind of more difficult experiences in that vein, not just like, ha ha, isn't it funny that my friends love that I memorize stuff and go really quick. Would you register the difference? Like, would you, would you clock the fact that that you were coming in with an anecdote or or something that you had kind of just memorized and other people were at a different pace? Like, would that, would you be aware of it in the moment? Like people well, aren't, I mean, sure. If you, and if you would be, if you would say like, Hey, Joe, you're, you move quicker than these people. I'd say, sure. Yeah, fine. Whatever. I was just happy enough to, <laughs> to be with good company. People sure, who right, enjoyed my, sure who enjoyed being around me. But so the answer to that question is basically no. And, you know, some of the kind of more 
difficult sides of that is, you know, in my marriage, for example, you know, I said to my therapist, am I allowed to be vulnerable on this podcast, man? Just, no, that, no, okay? I just want, I just want, I'm just rigid. worried you may start, you may start charging me. I said to my therapist, I, I said, I, I'm, I'm really feeling a lot of shame that it took me 38 years to really start paying attention to my wife. We had a lovely relationship, you know, if she was on here, she would be, you know, saying, oh no, he's, 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 there's a reason I married him. But that is, that is something that's been difficult is realizing all the things that I was missing all these years. I used to start my philosophy classes with this sublime commercial that was put out by some bicycling advocacy organization. That's one of those like, you know, follow people, pay attention to one thing. And then at the end of this clip, we'll show you the thing that you missed, right? This is the the moonwalking bear. Sure. When sure. people are throwing around. I hope that makes sense. You can link it in podcasts, like whatever it is you do sure. with links. Sure. The line is, it's easy to miss what you're not looking for. To me, that was philosophy. It's easy to miss what you're not looking for. And I didn't realize all those years that there was something I was missing, something very fundamental about myself. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It it makes intimate sense. I mean, I also feel like something got tamed in me is the way I think about it recently. And I think it's partly the work that I do in my own work. To be able to digest certain things that previously I was just offended against. Like I just didn't even know I was offended against them. I was just reacting as I react to things. But if you listen to the podcast or the work that I do, I feel like like also what you're describing, and I don't I don't want to um project onto it or bring my own schemas to bear on what you're sharing, but there is for me the maturational process also, as we understand it, is this kind of like the deaths of certain parts of our personality and the way that things become known to us at certain ages and and that that previously we just, you know, uh, and I think the early, like the 20s and the 30s are really about, there is a kind of nar- narcissism. I don't mean that in the colloquial sense. There's a sense of going out in the world and kind of just trying to put one foot in front of the other and get a job and and have kids. And then, and then there is, you know, there is this kind of decaying of the personality that goes on that I think is, well, as you're saying, it's really important to recognize it, but, but, but it comes to us and all of us in our own idiosyncratic ways, like in the way that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the word, the, the, the verb decaying is an interesting choice and we'll get you on the couch after this and great, dig into that a little great. bit more. That way I won't charge you. We can just, it'll be yeah. a quick, quick. Well, I'll charge you and then it'll all even out. Although I think you probably, have the chops to charge a little bit more. <laughs> See, we can just goof around the whole podcast. I feel like that's what I want to do, Mitch. I miss you. I miss you too. Um, but, you know, I, number one, of course, of course, I'm not offended that you would uh, relate your own experiences. And yeah, I guess I'm quote unquote special, but I'm also just talking about um, understanding something about myself that I didn't previously. That's a universal human experience. And so I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's hopefully why non-ADHD people can read this and think, oh yeah, cool. There's this aspect of myself that I was missing. And, you know, one thing that you said just reminds me of this. It's sort of a joke that I tell, but I think it's, I really believe it. This midlife crisis business has got all the wrong branding. It's fantastic. At least for me, like call it an awakening because you keep your head down, you know, evolution is has us behave in certain ways particularly when we're young because evolution isn't interested in us you know connecting with some kind of uh, spiritual aspect of existence or really understanding ourselves in a fundamental way evolution is clunky and it wants us to well this is a family show i don't want to get too into it but um you know, past 35, whatever our Neolithic ancestors were up to, there wasn't much time anyways. Whereas here you and I are, and I I feel like my life has just started in some ways. You know, it's interesting when you mentioned earlier, I don't want to gloss over it because it's a refrain that a lot of people repeat around privilege, around, look, I had a relatively good childhood and there's a great term, American self-psychologist, Heinz Kohut, former psychoanalyst, and he talks about optimal frustration, right? So 
when everyone's kind of scratching at, well, what do we mean, right? Everyone, everyone talks about dysfunctionality and, you know, everyone's like, my family's dysfunctional. It's like, but okay, well, what, what, why are we always talking about this and what is the baseline, right? What, 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 what do we all imagine that would go on if things are relatively okay, right? Because we'll all kind of right. sit at a party yeah. and be like, my mom's crazy and your mom's crazy and my, but what, like, what- <laughs> I've is, sat at parties with you and done that. Right, what is it, what are we yeah. actually talking about? And I, and what my experience has been, as you talk about it, is that you're right, like, if we have four walls around us, food on the table, sort of good enough emotional connection, maybe not whatever, there is no perfect, but just enough. I, I think that that actually lends itself to the to the midlife crisis, which I agree with you, the, the branding. And that's partly what this podcast, that's why it's called The Dignity of Suffering. It's it's meant to kind of communicate a certain dignity around these, these processes. The the difference is when someone loses a mother at five years old, when someone's house is knocked down by a tornado, we don't have to get into our Jewish pedigree here, <laughs> but there's enough. I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy to. There's enough, there's enough to mine there in terms of, you know, dis yeah. dislocation and whatever, all the ways that that has transcended in the liturgy and philosophy. You know, that is what I see, actually. The, the midlife crisis starts at nine years old, and that's actually when life gets turned yeah. upside down. And it's a very different journey, right? People aren't hitting yeah. 35 and confronting their mortality. They right. they start at that age and have to construct hope, you know, from the beginning. And so there is, uh, it's an interesting, yeah. And again, you and I could go in so many directions. Uh, yeah, I think the whole language of privilege is is one that I'm I'm increasingly trying to get more comfortable speaking as objectively a privileged person in this society. But also it can be, its own challenge. And my friend, Michelle Shepard, who just had a wonderful piece in the star about, um, uh, the war on terror. She was a national correspondent for, um, the star reporting on the war on terror. She, um, this is uh, a Toronto uh, star, by the way. And for those of you that are listening Toronto star. from other, yeah. she, she's the one who told the story who I think did the best job telling the story of Omar Cotter. She's been all around the world. She's been in refugee camps, you name it. And I always talk to her and, you know, when I'm talking to her, I will hit this point where I'll say, well, what the hell am I doing? Why am I complaining to you about this? You know, you have interviewed people who've been dislocated as a result of genocide or as a result of civil war or both. And she always says this wonderful, compassionate thing to me. She says, look, we stress to our levels, right? We're all human beings. We're all thrust into existence. We're not quite sure what the hell we're supposed to be doing or why we're here, but, you know, act accordingly. That is, that's, that, that's plenty for, sure. uh, for anybody. Sure. And so I kind of, I always come back to that wonderful line that she uses. Um, well, and you know more about this than, than, than I do, but, you know, consciousness and seeing the world and you talked about evolution and of course, what distinguishes us, you know, I love that in academia until you have tenure, they won't let you, it would be foolish to sort of tackle any right, you know, yeah. consciousness, right? It's like, don't, don't even yeah. write about it. Wait until no one can. Unless you're Daniel Dennett. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think there's something to the point that you're making, which is confusing, especially when we have such access to such terrible stories right in front of us. There is something very germane to each of our own experiences of, of interpreting the world. And, and I really do think in that basic sense that that is the crisis that we get confused about when it's not acute or it's not like my house burnt down or or I lost my family in war it's hard i think to actually Sean said this yesterday to you know we talked about academia and he, he has survivor's guilt that he got a job and he talked about yeah. that he you know he made it through the pinhole like he managed to kind of but, but I have to believe that that's in, in each of our lives, there is that pinhole uh, that we're getting through multiple times. And, yeah. and if we, if we devalue it, like if we minimize it, that's the neurosis actually, I think like if we, yeah. if we, if we're like, no, 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 I'm fine. Like that, that actually I think is just defensive and robs us of a rich opportunity to kind of just, just, just level with ourselves in whatever yeah. scrap at the scraps. Like it's a scrappy process. I find it's kind of like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. A, a good friend. I, I, one of the many things that's difficult about hanging out with me, I think, and I think my friends and family would agree is I'm always sort of trying to talk anybody who isn't into therapy into going to therapy. And I recognize that that's a delicate thing to do. And I don't, 
do it so delicately sometimes. But a good, good friend of mine in one of these discussions who isn't in therapy looked at me at one point and said, wait, Joe, you think I need to go to therapy? And I looked at them and I said, I think everybody needs to go to therapy. What are you talking about? And so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And we're only, it's, it's wild. They were only just developing a language as a society about like, about mental health and physical health being the same thing, just health. And it's, it's to me, it's wild that the boomers didn't have that. Never mind Joe, everybody I, else I, that came before them. I was at my cottage last week and I picked up a book on the veranda from 1947 yeah. on psychosomatic medicine. Yeah. And the text reads, it's an American doctor. <laughs> uh, it reads like anything that you're reading today. My, my best friend and I were quoting it on the dock. It, it's kind of incredible. I, I, I do think there's this kind of evangelical archetype that, that every generation, which I think, you know, obviously the, the commercialization and fetishization of everything, we love to repeat this refrain of like, this will change your life. Buy this, it'll change, you know, it hooks into right. something so exquisitely powerful in us. Uh, but I do think, I really do think that, you know, you and I sitting here being middle-aged men, having, you know, it's funny, I reflect back to being a kid and remembering my own neighbors and kind of seeing them around my parents. And now I'm this age, right? Like we're the, we're the dads on the block. And, mm -hmm. you know, and here we are talking about how these parts of our personality have to, right? Right. Like to use an analogy, I always say, it's like, you know, we joke, oh, if I go play a baseball game, I'm going to pull a hamstring. I'm going to, you know, right. like we can still do it, but there's a good chance that, that it'll go wrong, right? If we fast forward to being 70, there's probably a 99% chance something's going to go wrong. But the brain is just an organ, right? Like it's the same thing, right? You go to talk to someone or have an emotional experience and you can't, you can't fake it or recover in the same way that you could recover from a pickup game of something, you know? And, and so yeah. I think in some ways that's what we face. Sorry, just quickly. Yeah. So, so therefore yoga, right? Yeah. Yo yo yoga for the body and then therapy, yoga for the mind. Well, and like you said, it makes me the most nervous when I'm traveling because my yoga schedule goes off and I'm always a bit like, just I can't wait to get back into that. I know I could do it at home, yeah. but I just, I need to. I didn't yeah. mean to trigger any yoga pain on your part, Mitch. No, I, so I, I, like I, you I, could talk about Ulysses for the next four hours. I could talk about yoga. So don't, let's not, let's not. I don't want to talk about Ulysses for the next four hours. I could talk about Ulysses as Grant for the next four hours. <laughs> I could listen to you talk about Ulysses for the next four hours. Something about a moo cow. But I, <laughs> you, you. Grant's who I'm interested You brought up laziness. And I don't, I don't want to, this, this is important because this is something that I, I don't feel as clear about. So I want to lean on you a bit in terms of what, what you're going through, what you've been through. And I think a lot of people, you're really coming out and trying to destigmatize medication. That I think you're absolutely on point around talking about it. And just another quote, you say the prospect of medicine, ha, the lazy man's way out for an especially lazy man. It's these stigmas that held me back and far more consequentially hold society back. Drugs are too easy and anything that takes less work is bad. I've always resisted to an extent gender in my work. I think because at an early age, I was in a, a you know, I went to an arts high school. It was very like, it was very lucky in that way that, that it, it wasn't rigid. So I'm almost going the opposite. I'm, as I work more with men over the years, I'm like, oh, okay, like, there is this thing around laziness uh, that mm -hmm. really is difficult to bring to the fore. And, and, I, and I know that I also carry, like you're helping me understand myself, right? There's things I, I can't take care of myself in certain ways. Like I'm doing the podcast with you is my jam, right? Like I'm hyper-focused. Yeah. Like, but when it comes to like daily stuff, sometimes like I'm disorganized, like I have a hard time yeah. and I feel even some shame talking about it with you. So thank you for, for opening up because I just say to myself, you, you fucking lazy, like, yeah. You can't do this, yeah. but I know that I thrive in a certain arousal, right? Like highly aroused, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, connected, but other stuff for me is, is a challenge. And I feel like you're, I don't, I don't want to take away from your, you know, you're, you're the one I want to talk to, to talk about that. Like, like the connection between this shame around laziness 
And also, I think this idea around medicine that you're trying to just level with people, I'd love to hear a bit more about. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I really appreciate that you're able to talk about this. I, I love talking to you about anything. I don't just have to talk about myself. Um, and I'm glad also that this has helped you think about these kinds of things. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not so active on, on the internet. Like to me, like WhatsApp is about as sophisticated as social media as I do. Um, so I haven't like, I haven't heard much other than, you know, some positive responses to the piece, but I can imagine that there is a constituency who is, would, would read what I said and still bristle, right? Say, well, no, actually, you know, we, we can't, we can't get too comfortable around this idea around drugs. They're really fraught. They're really, uh, you know, and great. It worked out for you, but they're dosing a whole generation of kids with stimulants and we don't know what the hell is going on. And I, I'm not qualified to enter that debate. And I tried to, there was sort of a line in there where I said, look, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not arguing for a one size fits all. And I'm not arguing for everybody to take medicine for everybody to do drugs. At least I don't think I am. I always use this example because I love camping. To me, that's where do I want to be? I want to be in Killarney Provincial Park. And I actually think that there's there's a real future for kind of outdoors future. I'm sure there's, there's lots of people doing it. outdoors therapy. I thought you were going to say like outdoors and smoking drugs. I was like, I think, I think we've covered, I think that's I'm, been I'm, well established. Listen, I, I, <laughs> from my own experience and in the literature, but if you and I were, if you and I were um, uh, not on a campsite, but in, uh, in a, a kind of a, a hunter gatherer band um, thousands of years ago, and I was in your band and we didn't have you know, methylphenidate or listed deaths of methamphetamines, um, you wouldn't need them because, yo, know, you'd be happy as a clam to have me collecting firewood, um, uh, telling jokes, uh, running around on the campsite, doing God knows what that needs to be done or running around the, the, the village or whatever, wherever the hell we are. Um, and I wouldn't need medicine. I wouldn't need medicine because all the stimulation that I need is out there. Um, but that's not where we are. And so I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to um, arguments that say, well, no, you know, there are natural ways to be in the world where you don't, there's more natural medicines out there, whether it is meditation or whether it is yoga, or whether it is just, you know, in education, we, we talk about differentiation, which is, yeah, not everybody's cut out to be a writer. So why are we making people, why are we making everybody write? Sure. I'm, I, I get it. I'm sympathetic to it and I'm on board, but we live in the society we live in. And, um, in order to get some people through high school or university or whatever it is they're doing, people like me need more stimulation and, you know, it's a blunt tool. And I look forward to <laughs> more bespoke drugs in the future that address some of the serious side effects that we're dealing with that I deal with on a daily basis that we're dealing with, with my daughter, but I just cannot open my heart to an argument that says that says that there's something inherently wrong with drugs, because, you know, in my activism, I'll talk to people who say, well, you know, come on now, you know, psychedelics, that's ridiculous. I don't do drugs or, or, or even uncomfortable with marijuana. Okay. So we talk a little bit more and oh, they like ice cream and they like coffee. All right. So we agree that there are some drugs these people like, right. Or if I say something really nice to them, oh, well, they're happy to, for me to say that to me, that's what I mean when I'm talking about medicine, drugs, and it just interventions in our consciousness in order to achieve a certain state. So I'm not saying everybody needs to, to do exactly what I do. What I'm saying is we ought not stigmatize things that are going to help. That's it. That's why shortcut. That's why I was so fascinated with this idea of a shortcut because in many ways, nobody has a problem with shortcuts. If I told you, come on over here, Mitch. And I told you how to get here. My wife heard it. She says, no, 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 Mitch, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's not the quickest way to get here. The quickest way is you got to go down young. And then, well, that's not a shortcut. That's just the way to get to my house. And if you were going the long way, I don't know, are you interested in like a drive? Are you interested in being in your car longer? Because there's reasons people might do that, but uh, I just don't under, I, I, I don't understand 
Well, but well, and it sounds like you're describing piece. in some ways your own innate experience having had to jump through these these emotional hoops. Uh, and and I know there are a lot of people out there uh, struggling with these intransigent, you know, issues in their life after decades, blaming themselves, uh, worried that right others will will judge them, maybe in secret. Uh, right. Taking, you know, taking drugs and not telling anybody, and that's a big burden to carry on top of already uh, suffering and struggling. So, my instinct is to sort of ask you: Could you open up a bit and tell people? I mean, what was it like? Like, what was it like to jump through that hoop? And then, what was it emotionally and physically? Because people are scared. I think they're going to lose their their personalities or their who they are. Yeah, and I'm just curious yeah. if you could open up a bit. Like, what was it like? What happened? Like, what was it like to sort of go on medication and? Yeah. And that, that was the line I, I, I said, I didn't want, I used to always, it was one line I'd say, I don't want to pathologize my personality. Done. Let's next topic. We don't need to talk about ADHD. We don't, we don't need to talk about Ritalin or Adderall or Vyvanse or whatever, whatever drug addresses um, ADHD these days. You know, I don't want to get too dramatic, but it was kind of a Plato's cave moment where I, I realized that I'm still here, but I can do things I didn't used to be able to do. We can we can have a kind of a, a practical conversation about executive functioning, or we can have a deeper conversation about what that says about the self. Who who are we? And that has been a really profound experience because realizing that that this was accessible to me all these years, mm-hmm. and I don't know the age, the, the right age that somebody ought to go on on these kinds of medications. I just know I, I I needed it earlier than I got it. I'm grateful that I've got it now. When you say do things, what do you mean? What things now can you do that that all of a sudden kind of? Uh... Well, Microsoft Excel for a start, Mitch. That's the example and the piece. But I mean, less trivially, I can listen to people in a way that I never mm-hmm. used to be able to, and pay attention to them, and realize how interesting they are. I was about to say, and find them interesting. You know, there's that great Hemingway quote, I drink to make people more interesting. And that's tongue in cheek, Mm. but I don't take my medication to make people more interesting. I take my medication because it allows me to realize Mm. how inherently interesting everybody Mm. is. And that's, shout out to Michelle. I just keep uh, referencing Michelle. Michelle has always said, that's one of her superpowers. It's the reason she's such a wonderful journalist. She just has that period. She, She knows how interesting everybody is. And as a result, she's able to pay attention when they speak. I think if I transitioned off my medication, which is no joke for anybody listening mm-hmm. to uh, this i miss a day of vivance and i crash and that's that's weird that independence is an interesting conversation but if i were to gradually wean myself off of this medication which i will one day i, I I'm, I'm quite certain that's that's I, I think part of the part of the course of treatment i have no doubt that i will be able to pay more attention to people just because I now know mm. intuitively, mm. right? I'll use a psychedelic word. This is Aldous Huxley's. Uh, I have I have noesis on that. I have a noetic understanding of how interesting people are. And I told you in the peace myths. I told you in the peace myths, and you know this already. I'm for fun. I'm for stimulation. So now that I know just how interesting and stimulating people are, I'm never I, I'm never going to be to go back to um, the person that I was, which was. I'll just talk about myself all the time. Don't get me wrong. I still talk about myself plenty, as we all do. But I will be much more motivated to do the things that the medicine has allowed me to do. You said, well, what else can we do? I can plan. I can execute complicated tasks that uh, I used to be able to execute in far clunkier ways that would piss my wife off far more, right? Like her, this is kind of a throwaway line, but she always used to say, when Joe says dinner is going to be ready in 10 minutes, it means dinner is going to be ready in 30 minutes. Well, now when Joe says dinner is going to be ready in 10 minutes, it's ready in 10 minutes. That's kind of a, a, a perhaps a trivial anecdote example, but that is, that's the basics. That's the basis of it. Can I bring one more piece in from the article as we sure. kind of uh, make our way to the conclusion of at least this conversation? Because it resonates very deeply with me what you're saying. 
There is something about the rhythm of the brain when it can slow down, I guess. This is Stephen Porges' work, right? He has this idea called interoception, right? So the ability to be perceptive of our internal states. And I think that is a key ingredient very often in relationships because it just allows this reciprocity. And, and if we're going at a certain rhythm, you know, it's it's protective, right? And it can be very rich intellectually, as you're pointing out, and and but it can it can rob us, I guess, of that felt experience of like holding the other or being able to slow down enough to kind of take in right the the interest objective but you wrote for many years i felt unworthy and what i what i find interesting about the ways that we defend ourselves even unconsciously is that idea that to somebody else they would never know right if anything yeah. actually joe if anything and i was thinking about this before i didn't know whether it would be useful to bring up I think there were times when we would hang out and I would be with you and you would, you know, be like, like I had, you know, again, uh, interesting conversation. I'd be like, oh, I'm unworthy. Like, yeah, like yeah. I feel a bit unworthy because there's the, you know, like Joe's really on this kind of tract and I can't keep up or something. And, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I love this idea of how you can't destroy matter, right? And, and that whole, that, yep. that really, like the idea of transference in its, you know, just in, in the interest of it, of how we communicate things unconsciously. It, what was so beautiful about the article was like, oh, I'm closer. There's something going on that I couldn't perceive. And I, and I think, I think yeah. that's what you're writing, that there was an unworthiness there that was hard to articulate or even know. Is, is that what I, was that what I'm hearing or there was something there? Yeah, no, I, I think you're on it. And I really, I re, I'm really glad that this, that we got to this because um, I think that there's lots of people who know me or who have interacted with me over the years who read that line and be like, uh, buddy, your problem was you thought you were too worthy, right? And people who perhaps would interact with me now, um, they would be confused my exuberance with arrogance. <laughs> Hell, maybe I'm confusing my exuberance with arrogance, but I think you, you, got what I was going for. And one thing that I, I realize hearing you speak, and I appreciate you sharing that with me, Mitch, is as much as I have been given real gifts, right? Um, I can move fast and I'm quick and I'm, I'm sharp, but I can make these jokes. Um, one of the nature, one of the things that I realize is part of my experience is causing people pain around me, right? Whether it's because they see me and they say, well, why aren't I moving that fast? Right. Or why is he moving that fast? It's overwhelming me. It's upsetting me. Right. You know, my wife, my wife is a very, very different speed than I am. And that's really hard. Now I'll tell you this one quick story. That's just so near and dear to my heart. And to me, it's so representative of the things I'm learning. I just got back from just a sublime six days in the back country with my son seven years old, James, just him and me in Killarney. And we one day hiked up a ridge and, you know, this is, it was safe, but we're sort of billy goading up the ridge, right? You kind of go diagonally and then you, uh, you pick a, a line on another diagonal. That's a safe line. You don't take that line and it's not so safe. So I looked at him and I said, you need to be right on my heel. Okay. I don't want you going first because I want to be able to pick the route, but you need to be right on my heel. And I noticed he was really stressed out and pissed off at me, right? He's behind me. And my, James is a lovely young man. You know, our kids are lovely other than when they're tired, they're sick, they're stressed and every other time where they're not lovely. And he was really stressed out. And I looked back and I stopped, I got on his level and I looked at him. I said, do you think that you need to move as fast as me in other, like other times in our lives? Like, do you, are you used to this idea mm -hmm. that you should be moving as fast as your dad? And, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm having this, some deep philosophical conversation with James and he's on every single part of my melodrama. But I, I think I, I, I got through to him that, that I was hip to what he was concerned about. And I said to him, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to count to three in my head. And then I'm going to take another step. Mm. And then I'm going to count to three. And then I'll take another step. And I, I kept that up for like 20 minutes. 
for the dangerous part. It was hard, but I did it. But within a minute, he is yucking it up. He's busting my chops. He's telling me about the patterns he sees in the rocks. And this one looks like a deer. And he is just so relaxed. And that's a spiritual experience. Yeah. yeah. Realizing that part of my job as a father, every dad's got, you know, a fundamental job and it looks differently in every case. And in my case, part of my job is trying to teach my son that there's nothing wrong with him in the same way that there's nothing wrong with me. We're just different. My wife says this all the time and she's the most psychedelic person I know because she says stuff like this. She says, as soon as we can understand that we're separate, then we can realize that we're one. As soon as we understand how different we are and, and that that's okay, then we can live with each other in far more uh, harmonious ways and with less, as Bertrand Russell says, dyspepsia, which I wanted to do a whole paragraph on just luxuriating and how <laughs> awesome that word was, but my editors what does it were mean? able to win that war. What does it mean? I, it's kind of an old tiny word for just sort of being generally kind of cranky and pissed off. I could, I, I, we, we can get the dictionary definition. To go back though, I, I think what you are saying is very important and it is a whole other podcast around differentiation, parenting. Sure. And to go back to Plato's cave, you know, this, this idea of having to be aware of the projection, right? Like this is exactly what happened in that moment. There's a kind of uh, awareness of your own relationship to the environment, to the object, which is distinguished from your sons. And you, 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 we, we, that, that's parenting in a nutshell, right? We can't yeah. assume that we are the whatever uh, image on the wall of the Kate, you know, like, like that, that is unconsciousness, right? To sort of literalize our personality versus being aware that there is a, yeah, there's an idiosyncratic nature to our own subjectivity. And we have to see that almost from an eagle eye view so that we can then hold mind for the child who then feels yep. seen and can actually, the nervous system can relax because they're held in mind of the parent. But if we, you know, that goes yep. back to sort of what you said 15 minutes ago, which is this ability to, to know our own subjectivity, not capital K, no, just sure. some approximate, whatever we can get on any given day. <laughs> it just lets the other in. And uh, I'm really touched by talking to you. I'm, I'm, I have tears yeah. in my eyes. Like it's, um, <laughs> no, it's true. I, I, yeah. I can feel it. it. I'm not into kind of revisionist psychology. I haven't really said that out loud. It's just, it's just come, shooting from the hip right now. I'm not into revisionist psychology in the sense of like, oh, I wish X. Like, I, I actually believe that, I believe that there's something in each of our lives that, you know, comes together in a particular way uh, to allow ourselves to, to move in a different way. You know, it's not, we can't predict it. It's not, I don't believe in wild goose chase psychotherapy where it's like, oh, I wish I had known this when I was 25. And right, we didn't. Yeah. And, yeah. and you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this conversation if you did. Again, not to mystify this, but like, it, it's wonderful for me to come back to Canada and to read your piece. Yeah, I was nervous even kind of reaching out to you a little bit because I didn't want to like step on it, but I was like, oh, this is real and moving. I'm, and I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you reached out, dude. I, I, I miss you. I love you. And I'm, I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about this. This is, this is wonderful. Awesome. I hope we continue to and, and I'll follow your writing and uh, let's do it again. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. My love to your wonderful wife and your wonderful son. Ditto. What a treat to reconnect with Joe, to learn more about his commitment, passion, newfound interest that obviously sprang from his own journey to understand himself and connect with others in ways that he found uh, quite challenging before. And uh, what, what was so touching for me, of course, was that we could be so transparent with each other, especially kind of the way you read a book when you're older and it means something completely different to you than when you read it when you were young. It, it felt similarly that I could experience Joe through a whole other lens. And this whole notion of neurodiversity feels like it it is a continuation of our appreciation 
for the uniqueness of each individual and the ways that the human being evolves and processes their world internally, externally, existentially. And our challenge to continually recommit ourselves to make space for the other. On that note, I will bid you a farewell. I appreciate so much uh, you continuing to support me and interact with me. Get on Instagram, come to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, and uh, send me feedback so I can send out podcasts that are meaningful for you. I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>